Father, here we are. God, we're delighted in who you are and what you've done for us. But Lord, that delight, it needs increasing. It needs magnification. And I just pray that you would shine in all of your glory from your word, that we would see how beautiful you are, that we would see how much you love us, and that it wouldn't just be something that we're awed by, but that it would be something that changes us permanently. Lord, we ask for this miracle through the power of your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. James was a chemist living in England. He had his shop and he and his wife were longing for a son. And one day he and his wife went to the back of the shop and they knelt down together and they began to pray. They asked God that if he would grant them a son, they told God, grant us that he would be a missionary to China. And so it was that little James Jr., James Hudson Taylor, was born in England and he grew up with this idea, I'm going to be a missionary to China. But when he became a teenager, he began to become disenchanted with Christianity as he saw people who would come to church, they live one way, but then they would do something totally different. He began to, to walk away from that along with some friends who were influencing him in a different direction. But God brought him back. And by the age of 21, he was finally on his way to China. Now, if you had seen James just a little while into his time there in Hudson Taylor, if you'd seen him in his time there in China, you would have been shocked. This is what he looked like a little bit, a few years later when he was a little bit older. I'm going to put a picture up of him. But there's something different about the way that you see in this picture that, James, that Hudson, James Jr., looked. Hudson Taylor. You see, most of the missionaries in China at that point lived on the coast. If we go ahead and put up the first picture. Most of the, the missionaries at that time were from Europe, and they dressed in their European garb. But what do you notice about what Hudson Taylor's wearing? He's wearing a Chinese hat. He's wearing some Chinese clothing. Now, this made him a laughing stock among the Protestant missionaries. They said, why are you doing this? You're coming too close to them. You're, you're, you're acting like you're following their customs. And it didn't go much better when he walked through the streets. You imagine this white guy walking through the streets of China, and here he is wearing Chinese clothing. He was a laughing stock. In fact, as he began to have this mission to go into the inland of China, where there was only about 12 missionaries at the time, and they were only still on the, the very edges of the inland of China, as he began to go there, he was persecuted by the Chinese but he had a purpose. You see, he was wearing this clothing because he wanted to identify with the people. He wanted them to feel comfortable. He wanted to come as close to them as possible. And that is the same story that you find as we look at Jesus. We talked last week about how Jesus even, out of all the places that God could have instructed Joseph in a dream to go, he instructs him to go to Egypt with Jesus, baby Jesus. And it's, it says that it was so that God could call his son out of Egypt. He was the representative 
of Israel. He was going through the footsteps of where Israel had failed time and time again, even from the time he was a child. But go with me to Matthew chapter 2. Today we find what happens after they're coming out of Egypt. In Matthew chapter 2, this is the end of his uh, going through the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, and we'll start in, I believe, verse 20, verse 19. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 19. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Now Herod died in about 4 BC, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Jesus is maybe two years old at this point. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. You remember in our first sermon talking in December here about the birth of Jesus, we talked about Archelaus and what a wicked ruler he was and that it was when he was removed that everyone knew, should have known, that Shiloh, the peace giver, had come, that Jesus should have been born. Well, here as Joseph is coming back, he sees that Archelaus is reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod. He's afraid to go there. He's warned by God in a dream and he turned aside into the region of Galilee. Now just pause right there. Already, there's a problem. There's a problem because this means that Jesus is going to grow up not in Judea, but in Galilee. Look at John chapter 7 and verse 52. This is going to put a little bit of a stumbling block before the people who are going to look at Jesus and wonder whether he is the Messiah. In fact, the the Pharisees seize on this in John chapter 7 and verse 52 when when Nicodemus is defending Jesus and saying, "Does, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Verse 52 says, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Why go to Galilee? Galilee is not the place where prophets come from. Galilee is... There's nothing special about Galilee. The the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. He's not supposed to come out of Galilee. At least that was the way they interpreted Scripture. They thought that their region was the most important, and they looked at Galilee as backwoods-ish. They looked at Galilee as, as having too much of a mixture of other cultures coming in, and that it wasn't the pure faith that was followed there. Not Galilee, of all places, but That's where Joseph turns in Matthew chapter 2. He goes into the region of Galilee because God told him to in a dream. In verse 23, it goes on to say this, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now Nazareth was about 64 miles from Jerusalem. It was located in the hills. It was at about 1,400 feet in elevation. It was a a little mountain village. Sounds like a nice place to be raised, doesn't it? 
until you see what's said about Nazareth. Let's go over to John chapter 1. It's pretty interesting. I was reading about how Jesus, as a boy growing up, if he climbed up on a hill as a, as a little boy, that he would be able to see in every direction around him. He would have been able to see the major trade routes that were running by. He would have been able to see the different people coming by from different countries. But in John chapter 1, when Philip is describing to Nathaniel that this Jesus is the Messiah, he says something to him, a little seed of doubt where he's really questioning who Jesus is. John 1 and verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law, also the prophets, wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. You see how significant it is that Joseph is warned to go to Nazareth. Jesus repeatedly is known as Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he's from. There was a lot of people with the name Jesus. This was the Hebrew name Joshua, Yahweh saves. And, and here Jesus is distinguished as he's Jesus, the one that came from Nazareth. But look at the response here. I mean, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything is it possible that anything good could come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel would have known about Nazareth because Nathaniel was from Cana, which was just a few miles away from Nazareth. Nathaniel knew that Nazareth was not the place that you wanted to be from. That nothing good came out of it. It was proverbial for its wickedness. Of all places, for the God of the universe to choose for His Son to live and to grow up, He chose Nazareth, this place that was filled with all of the temptations, that was filled with wickedness, that, that wasn't, it didn't even have a, a proper school system there for Jesus to be trained by the rabbis. Why Nazareth? And could anything good really come out of but in this, there's a lot of hope for us. Sometimes you wonder, in the life circumstances that you came through, and the things that you were born into, the, the family dynamics that you have experienced in your life, can anything good come out of my life? Is there really anything that God could... Wow, we don't need you to talk right now, do we? <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you, Siri, but no thank you. <laughs> If you think about it, it gives us a lot of hope to know that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, that he went through some of the toughest temptations, the worst possible experiences. Could anything good come out of Nazareth? Sometimes I look at my own heart and I wonder, could anything good ever come in my own life, in my own heart? And I feel like I'm blessed with the family that I have and the circumstances that I grew up in. We look at our lives, we look at our hearts, and we wonder, could God possibly bring anything good out of this? And Philip gives a clear answer to that. We keep reading in verse 46. Philip said to him, Come and see. <laughs> Come and see. 
Come experience it for yourself. Come check this out for yourself. Look at for come experience exactly what it is that's come out of Galilee. Who it is that's come from Nazareth. He doesn't try to argue with him, but he just says, just look. Just come and look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in looking, everything is changed. Everything is changed in our lives. Because we have a lot of hope knowing where Jesus came from. Nazareth is a a town that was in the mountains, like we said. But it was a town that the word Nazareth, they believe, might have been based on the word Hebrew word netzer, which means branch. And it might have had to do with the sagebrush that was, or the, the, the bushes that were there around the town. And you notice that in Matthew chapter 2, it says, this might fulfill what the prophet said, that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, if you know your Old Testament, could you tell me what verse in the Bible says he will be called a Nazarene? That's what I was thinking too. There aren't many verses like that. In fact, scholars sometimes point at this and say, what prophets are they talking about? And honestly, we don't know. It could be that they're talking about some of the prophets who we don't have as part of our canon. There are prophets in the Old Testament who did not record books in the Old Testament. But another hypothesis is that Nazareth comes from the word netzer, which means branch. Go with me to, Hebrew, uh, to, to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1. This is where we find that Hebrew word used for describing Jesus as the branch of Israel. In other places, you'll find a different Hebrew word that's used for describing uh, Jesus as the branch. But here in Isaiah chapter 11, it's using the word netzer, which may be where we get the word Nazareth from. Verse 1, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. You notice what it's saying here about Jesus. It's describing an attitude of dependence. This is the one through whom all things came into existence. He created everything. He ruled on the throne of the universe. And yet it's saying, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. He won't judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. He's going to be dependent upon the Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, in order to give him wisdom, in order to give him understanding, in order to give him might and strength. That is who we find Jesus to be. When later he's described as Jesus of Nazareth, go to, uh, to Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Jesus talk, Peter talking about who Jesus is as the branch, as this, this uh, prophet from Nazareth. He's defending who he is in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. He says this, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. There's that language of 
of the branch who was filled with the Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. And notice what kind of a person he was who went about doing what? Good. And, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. How? For God was with him. You see, the Son of God took on an incredible role in that he came down and he became human flesh. And in coming as human flesh, though he was equal with God, he took on the prerogatives of a human being and he fixed his eyes on the Father. And he depended upon the Father. He depended upon the Holy Spirit for every bit of his life. And so as he grew up in Nazareth, surrounded by temptation, surrounded by wickedness, he lived a good life. He lived a life to bless others, to give others. In the midst of a town filled with selfishness, a town that was distracted from God, he grew up fixed on God. And that's to give you and I hope because Jesus is our righteousness. We talked about it last week, how this is the hope that we have, righteousness by faith. This is essential for us to grasp that Jesus went through all of this for you and I, so that he could give us an example, and not only so he could give us an example, so that he could give us power to obey. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is describing how God uses the weak things of the world in order to, uh, to confound the wise. And in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, it says this, But of him, that's God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. What else is there? <laughs> What else do you possibly need? Jesus came for you. Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All of it is Jesus. And friends, if you're trying in some way to reach God in any other way than through Jesus Christ, stop. It's so empty. It's so meaningless. Jesus is your righteousness. And we talked about righteousness last week. What is righteousness? Righteousness is agreement with God. And God is love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. So to love others, to love God, this is righteousness. But you can't love people. You're not capable of loving. I mean, think about that person at work. You know the person that I'm talking about. Can you really love them? Think about that neighbor you know the one I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the one who always brings you cookies this time of year. I'm talking about the other neighbor. The one who nearly runs over your kids on the way to work. The one who you wish didn't live in your neighborhood. Can you really love them? But God calls you to love your enemies. It's not possible for us to live a righteous life, but Jesus is our righteousness. And he longs to lead us to live a righteous life. Not just to lead us to live a righteous life, but to be our righteousness. To actually dwell in us and live out his life through us. And why is that? Look at what it goes on to say. 
verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. In the end, when we're in heaven, nobody's going to say, hey, yeah, I'm here because I'm a really loving person. Every person is going to be there because they said, man, Jesus came into my heart and I just love God and I love other people and my life has been changed and it's going to be all the glory going to the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the earth. Jesus is our example. The one who went through all of that temptation there in Nazareth. The one who went through all of the difficulties and trials that he faced. And you think about what Jesus faced. It's not exactly like the temptations that you and I face sometimes. I mean, think about Jesus in the wilderness. He'd been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil appears to him as an angel and tells him, all right, now, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. How many of you, when you're really hungry, have ever been tempted to turn stones into bread? I don't see many hands raised. Me neither. I've never had this temptation because it's not possible for me to turn stones into bread. But for Jesus, it was because Jesus was divine, but yet when he came in human flesh, in the likeness of human flesh, when he came to identify with you and I, when he stepped all the way down to to grow up in this filthy place called Nazareth, he wasn't relying on his power as the second person of the Godhead. He wasn't going through life with superhuman powers. It wasn't easy for him to saw logs in the carpenter's shop. He did it just like you and I do. He took on human flesh. If you question that, just look at John chapter 5 and verse 19. Jesus talking about himself, he describes his own experience. He says this, verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you that the Son can do how much of himself? Nothing of himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son does in like manner. Do you see where Jesus' eyes were fixed? Jesus had his eyes fixed on the Father. And that's why when he's there in the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil, he says, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He has his eyes fixed on who his Father is because he knows the word of God for himself. Each temptation, he responds with it. It is written because he's not relying on what he can say, what he can come up with, but he's relying on the Father. He's dependent on the Father. I can do nothing of myself. That's astounding to think that the God of the universe would step down and become a baby and become that dependent on his Father. He had all that he needed. He had all power. He was self-existent. And yet he chose to have that kind of dependence so that he could come and give us that same dependence in our lives. In the Australasian Union Conference record, June 1, 1900, it says this, Christ has pledged himself to be our substitute and surety, and he neglects no one. There is an inexhaustible fund of perfect obedience accruing from his obedience. Isn't that beautiful? That's exactly what Hebrews chapter 4 says when it says we have a high priest who can understand our weaknesses, who was tempted in how many points does it say? 
in all points like as we are. That means you can't face a temptation. I can't face a temptation that Jesus hasn't already faced and already overcome. And so I can go to him as a high priest today and I can fix my eyes on him and I can ask him to give me his own power in me and he wants to work in me and to do of his good pleasure. It's astounding what Jesus is longing to do in our lives. And this is what righteousness by faith is all about. Looking to Jesus as the only source of any of our strength to do anything for his glory. Education, page 253, says this, Faith is trusting God, believing that he loves us. You remember last week we looked at Galatians chapter 5 and it says, Faith working by love is the only thing that is of value. Faith that's energized by love. We only love because he first loved us. We can only go about a righteous life of loving others, of caring about this world, of caring about God, and of wanting to do good things if we are energized by love. He, we love because he first loved us. Faith is trusting God, believing that he loves us, and knows best what is for our good. Thus, instead of our own way, it leads us to choose his way. In place of our ignorance, it accepts his wisdom. This is the, the gift exchange that we get to participate in. We get to, to give him over our ignorance so that we can have his wisdom. We get to give him our weakness this Christmas so that we could have his strength. We get to give him our sinfulness. And in place of our sinfulness, we receive his righteousness. This is exactly what Romans chapter 5 says. It, when it says it made, or 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, I believe it is, says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God. But when Jesus came and was born as a baby, the Pharisees totally missed it. Like we looked at the first week of Romans chapter 10, they went about seeking to establish their own righteousness, and in that they missed the righteousness of the baby in the manger. They missed out on who Jesus was and what he wanted to be to them. They missed out that Jesus was giving himself to humanity for all of eternity. What an incredible gift. It goes on to say our lives, ourselves are already his. Faith acknowledges his ownership and accepts his blessing. Truth, uprightness, purity have been pointed out as secrets of life's success. It is faith that puts us in possession of these principles. Righteousness by faith. It's as we believe who Jesus is. It's as we believe the love that he has for us. It's as we experience that love and we fix our eyes on that, that everything changes in our hearts. This is the experience that God wants to give us this that's, after all, what Colossians chapter 1 says. This is what Christmas is all about. We read Colossians 1 at the very beginning of our church service, looking at the one who has always existed and through whom all things were created. But Colossians 1 goes on to say this in verse 27. It says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, it's a mystery. 
I can't stand up here and tell you all the reasons why you need to believe that Jesus living in your heart will radically change you. He's Jesus of Nazareth, and all that I can invite you to do, just like Philip, is to come and see. Come and see for yourself who he is. But I'm recognizing that I need to appreciate this truth so much more. This is the hope of glory. And what does Romans 3.23 say? It says that all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. You see, sin is a falling short of the glory of God because the glory of God is who God is. It's what emanates from Him. It's, it's His character that shines out of Him. And God is love. And a lot of times in my life, I find it hard to love. Do you find that? And I find it depressing when I find it hard to love. I'm speaking to myself this morning because Honestly, as a pastor, there's person after person that I think, oh, if only I had called them, or if only I had remembered to say this, or why did they walk away from Jesus? What did I do wrong? There's a problem there. If I begin to focus on myself, it's really depressing. It becomes really empty and really discouraging because I don't have what it takes. I can't lead one single person to Jesus, but I know where the answers are. I know who to point people to. And all I can do is say, come and see. Because the hope of glory this Christmas is that Jesus wants to give Himself to you. That He wants to dwell inside of you so that His glory can shine out in your character. So that people will see Him when they look at you and everything will be changed. You know, this is what Paul challenges us to do. Philippians chapter 2 talks about the life that Jesus lived and challenges us to have the same life. He begins it by challenging the Philippians to some things that seem really difficult. Just think about this. Imagine that, that Paul is writing to you and he's telling you that this is the way you need to live. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there is any consolation or if there's any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. In the Greek, it's really clear. He's saying because there is mercy, because there is love, because there is encouragement in Jesus, all of these things are pointing to this is the way we need to live. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Meaning, be in agreement together as a people. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let's pause right there. Maybe we should all go home. (laughs) Let nothing be done through selfishness or conceit or for your own ambition. How many of you experienced this last week, a week, where you didn't do something for your own selfishness and your own ambition? How much of the time are we seeking to please others so that they look good and so that we look good? Why is it sometimes even that we come to church, that we dress up and that we do the things that we do? Is it really for God? Or sometimes are we just doing it because it makes us feel good about who we are. Do nothing from selfishness, nothing for ambition. Don't think about yourselves. 
He goes on to make it even clearer. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Imagine if we were a church like that, where all we could think about is how to make each other's lives better. Imagine if your neighbors experienced that from you, that all you were concerned about is how to make their lives better. Imagine at work, when you're going through your challenges that you're facing, if your only thought was how to foresee the needs and interests of those at work. What Paul is challenging us to. Thankfully, us hanging. He gives us the picture of the mystery of godliness. He gives us the picture of Christmas to show us how this can take place. In verse 5, let this mind, let the same attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what was that attitude? Verse 6, who being in the form of God, he was God. Do not con- did not consider it robbery. That means he's not grasping after, he's not hanging on to, to be equal with God. He was God. He was co-eternally equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And yet he didn't grasp after staying in that position. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. He was Jesus of Nazareth, the one who grew up in the town where, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was the one who became a baby, who lived a humble carpenter's life. And people looked at him and wondered, who is this guy? Isaiah 53 says he was a root out of dry ground. He was despised and rejected. There was no beauty in him that he should be desired. It was beautiful, but people were blinded to that beauty. Going on, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Jesus took the role of absolute dependence upon God so that he could know what you and I are going through and he could give us himself and his power to overcome. And coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. This is where that radical love comes in and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul says, have the same mind in you. The mind that totally denies yourself, that empties your own prerogatives, your own will, your own, put all of that aside and focus on depending upon God. Because He is your righteousness. He is your redemption. He is your sanctification. Jesus is everything to you. John chapter 14, Jesus describing this experience in His own life, then challenges us to live the exact same life. John chapter 14 and verse 10, it says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak... To you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the same thing he said in John 5.19, that I can do nothing. It's the Father doing his works in me. It's not based on what I'm doing, what I can accomplish. It says, 
I'm just like John 5.19 says that he, he did whatever he saw the Father doing. But then he goes on to say this in verse 12. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. It says, I want for you to have the same exact experience of focusing on the power of divinity and of no longer relying on your own power. Faith and Works, page 71, says this, Separate humanity from divinity, and you can try to work out your own righteousness from now till Christ comes, and it will be nothing but failure. There's absolutely no righteousness, nothing that we can offer to the picture. All we can do is depend upon Christ in us, the hope of glory. Testimonies to Ministers, page 388. There's a passage that is so beautiful in its picture of God's love that I want to memorize it. I'm working on it. It says, We have the companionship of the divine presence. And as we realize this presence, our thoughts are brought into captivity to Jesus Christ. When we recognize that we're never alone, that Jesus is with us, it transforms our thoughts and brings them into captivity to Jesus. Our spiritual exercises are in accordance with the vividness of our sense of this companionship. These thoughts have a controlling power upon the whole character. I want to impress upon your mind that you may have a divine companion with you, if you will, always. The gift of Christmas is that Jesus wants to give you himself. That's what it's all about. Christ in you. The hope of glory. And there's an amazing gift exchange that takes place where Jesus says, My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give unto you. He says, These words I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. He says, As the Father has loved you, I have loved you. He wants to give you all of his own experience as he overcame as Jesus of Nazareth. As the mind dwells upon Christ, the character is molded after the divine similitude. The thoughts are pervaded with a sense of his goodness, his love. We contemplate his character, and thus he is in all our thoughts. His love encloses us. I'm going to put up a picture here on the screen. I want to see if any of you can tell me what this is. Look real closely. And Linda's probably not allowed to talk. It's a retina. <laughs> How did you know that? How many of you think that looks like a retina? <laughs> well, it is a retina. <laughs> right? And, and this is pretty spectacular because we had something that took place a few months ago. It was a solar eclipse. Now, there was a girl, she was the age of 26, and she went out with some friends and she was living in a place where this eclipse was going to be passing over and it was going to be pretty close to uh, uh, the, the totality. It got to about 70% and she's outside and she looks up for five or six seconds at the eclipse with nothing on her eyes. And then she looks away and then she grabs glasses from somebody and she didn't know what these glasses were, whether they were eclipse glasses or not, and she puts them on and she looks up. So I want all of you to stand up for a second. I mean it. Stand up if you can, if you're okay with that. All right. It's good, especially if you're sleeping. It helps you wake you up. <laughs> all right. So 
I want you to look at one of the spotlights if you can see them, or if not, look at the brightest light you can see at this room and just stare at it without looking away. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand. We're not even going to do 15 full seconds. Okay, now close your eyes. Close them. Can you still see those lights, whatever light you were looking at? It's kind of cool, isn't it? Well, that's maybe in miniature. I, I don't know if it's the exact same effect, but, but this lady, okay, you can go ahead and sit down. This, this lady, as she looked at the sun, the sun's light was so powerful that if you look closely at this, you can actually see right here that this is the crescent from the moon and that, that this is burned into her retina, the very image of the sun, the very image of the eclipse that she was staring at. Testimonies to Ministers goes on to say this, page 388, if we gaze even a moment upon the sun in its meridian glory, when we turn away our eyes, the image of the sun will appear in everything upon which we look. Thus it is when we behold Jesus. Everything we look upon reflects His image, the Son of Righteousness. We cannot see anything else or talk of anything else. Friends, have you experienced that yet? Have you come to the place where, like Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12, you fixed your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith? He's the author of it. He's Jesus of Nazareth, but He's also the perfecter. The one who... Philippians 2 goes on to say, works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Have you so fixed your eyes on the Son of Righteousness that all you can see is Jesus? That all you can share with others is Jesus? That this Christmas, the gifts under the tree, they're nice, but the only thing that really matters to you is Jesus? That you just want to love people because Jesus loves them, because Jesus died for them? Have you got to that place? I haven't, and I really want to be there. And I believe it's a reality that God wants for you and I to experience. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 37. Last verses that we'll look at here. Psalm chapter 37. Verse 4 is one of my favorite promises. Psalm chapter 37 and verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Let that sink in. Delight yourself in who God is, in the love that He has for you, and that He would rather you live than that He lived, that He laid down His own life for you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He will begin to implant His desires, His thoughts, His intentions, His feelings into your heart. He will begin to give you a capacity to love that you didn't believe you could ever have. He will begin to give you righteousness by faith. By faith of looking at the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Verse 5 continues. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And He will bring it to pass. Trust Him to do it. Trust Him to love that neighbor. Trust Him to love that family member that that you want to show Jesus and you don't know how. Verse 6, He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
God is longing to bring forth light and justice and righteousness out of our lives. He wants for us to reflect his character, and that will only take place as our eyes are seared by looking at the sun. By looking at Jesus and all of his righteousness, our hearts are changed. Hudson Taylor had this experience. He'd been a missionary for years in, in China, and he was going through one of the roughest experiences of his life. He was facing different political challenges. He was facing all different kinds of financial struggles. He'd lost a child by this point. He'd been sick. He'd been dealing with illness. And here he was trying to reach the world for Jesus. He had a passion. His slogan was, there's a million people dying each month without knowing Jesus. A million people in China are dying each month without knowing Jesus. He had this burden in his life, and he just wanted to know that Jesus was going to do the work. Well, he got this letter from a friend, and in this letter he learned about this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, this, this, this exchanged life of becoming one with God. And he said this, writing a letter to a friend, Oh, Mr. Judd, God has made me a new man. God has made me a new man. And he went on to say this, I looked to Jesus, and when I saw, oh, how joy flowed. I looked to Jesus, and the joy overflowed in my life. And his friend, Mr. Judd, went on to say, when he finally met with him, he said, he was a joyous man now, a bright, happy Christian. He had been a toiling, burdened one before, with laterally not much rest of soul. It was resting in Jesus now and letting him do the work which makes all the difference. Here was somebody who had been trying to share Jesus his entire life, who'd given everything to share the gospel in China. And after years of sharing the gospel, he finally came to the recognition that Jesus was everything. That he could rest in Jesus while working his heart out. That he could do it with confidence in Jesus. Whenever he spoke in meetings after that, a new power seemed to flow from him. And in the practical things of life, a new peace possessed him. Troubles did not worry him as before. He cast everything on God in a new way and gave more time to prayer. Instead of working late at night, he began to go to bed earlier, rising at 5 a.m. to give time to Bible study and prayer, often two hours before the work of the day began. It was the exchanged life that had come to him, the life that is indeed no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Do you want that experience? I want it. It's the hope of glory. It's the truth of Jesus of Nazareth that God was with him and that God was in him. And when he is in us, then we too are filled with his righteousness, his love for God and his love for others. That's what he's calling us to today. And by the way, in your mailbox, another encouragement to go and check your mailbox. If you were able to donate to our church this year and it was on our records, you, you did it with a tithe envelope and your name was there, you have one of these books in your, as a thank you in your mail folder. And if, if you're thinking, well, I didn't know I was going to get a book at the end of the year, then come talk to me and maybe we can work out something where you could get a book too. I have a few extras. But this book 
is Hudson Taylor's spiritual secret. And I've just read you just a little snippet of the experience of Hudson Taylor, how his life was transformed through seeing Jesus as everything. And I hope that you'll take the time this year, this Christmas, to read the book, to read through and see what it is that inspired a man to reach millions for Christ in China and how that same passion, that same love can inspire you to reach the world for him. It's an inspiring story. It's an encouraging story. So I hope that you read it. I hope that you enjoy it. But more than anything, I want to challenge you. This Christmas, fix your eyes on Jesus. Come and see. Come and look at Jesus of Nazareth for yourself. Because in looking, you will be forever changed. That's what the Bible is. It's here for us to to ponder over, to look into, to, to find out who this Jesus is, what he looks like, what he wants to do in our lives. Grab your Bible this Christmas, spend time with him, and fix your eyes on Jesus because his righteousness and his righteousness only will prevail. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you went the distance for us. Thank you for being born as a baby so that we could understand, so that we could see what you designed for humanity to become. Lord, our hearts are naturally at enmity against you. Naturally, we don't love you. Naturally, we don't love other people. But here we are, and just right now, we want to say, would you come into our hearts? Would you forgive us of our sins? Would you cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Would you fulfill your promise that the pure in heart, they will see God? We long to have the image of your beauty and your glory seared on our hearts. Lord, we want to be sealed with your love. We want to be transformed in looking. We want to love the people around us like you love them. And we want to love you the way that you have first loved us. Would you please fill us with that one holy purpose to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.